Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue has begun once a week. We go high with Dr. Larry Arnold, one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College. All of those Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at hillsdale.edu at hughforhillsdale.com or simply type Hillsdale Dialogue and iTunes in and you'll get them all in reverse order. You are walking into the middle of a long series on Churchill the Writer. We are in week five of that series Week four on the history of the English-speaking peoples. We're in volume two of the history. In book uh, five, the English Civil Wars, and a little bit of book six this week. Boy, this gets complicated in a hurry, but Churchill makes it interesting. Dr. Arne, England and Scotland, England and Wales, England and Ireland. Uh, people in our era really don't know how it became a united kingdom. And I don't even know when Wales comes under this way, even though I've read this. But I now know when Scotland does. It's when James the Sixth becomes James the First. Walk people through that process, if you will, and why Churchill spends an entire volume, almost, on the unification of the Isles. Well, that's, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it matters for two reasons. It matters because can you have stable government uh, in in Britain, in, in, in the island, uh, and it matters because is it going to be able to defend itself? And those two things are all, you can't, you know, if you make the list of England and Wales and England and Ireland and England and Scotland, you also have to compl- uh, complete the list by adding France and Spain to each of those pairs, yep. right? Because they're involved. Uh, uh, that Churchill emphasizes that over and over. And, for example, in the uh, w- w- Churchill made the uh, Ch- Churchill negotiated with Michael Collins, who was killed for it, <laughs> the Irish Independence Treaty, and he did that. And his father had fought against it; had made his career, had broken Gladstone over that, right? And Churchill explains why he thinks that's right now. And he explains it in terms of the difference in the amount of power the two places have, because Ireland is not the threat to England that used to be. You know, the threat because, you know, foreign troops could be there and they could come across the Irish Sea, which is not that big, and another uh, line of attack. And uh, Churchill thought this is the right thing to do. He thought Gladstone was right in the 19th century when he said, uh, what, Ireland standing at the bar, waiting now for an act of oblivion. I'm paraphrasing, right? And that, that, that act was 40 years in the future, and Randolph Churchill, who prevented it then, uh, his son Winston Churchill was the one who accomplished it. And, that's, and, and see, you, you know, it, German submarines, Churchill was in some ways optimistic about that, because in the Second World War, German submarines would refit and refuel in Irish ports. Yes. 
Because so, the Republic of Ireland was a, quote, neutral. And, yeah, see, uh, Eamon de Valera, that's mostly him. Let's uh, not get off on that because we'll be there all day. Let me yeah. read to you James I, who is James VI of Scotland. Elizabeth dies without an heir, the next in line for the throne of James I. And he's, he's welcomed by Robert Cecil. Everybody applauds. And he gets the Spanish ambassador, and he says to him, The House of Commons is a body without a head. The members give their opinions in a disorderly manner. Nothing is heard but cries, shouts, and confusion. I am surprised that my ancestors ever should have permitted such an institution to come into existence. I am a stranger and found it here when I arrived. So that I am obliged to put up with what I cannot get rid of. That's not really a ringing endorsement of uh, democratic representation at any any level, is it, Larry Arnold? Yeah, and you know, he... He comes into a place that is in every way a foreign country, even though he was related to its rulers, and they live side by side, Scotland and England. And, uh, you know, and by the way, it's not such a novel. It shouldn't be such a novelty because Scotland was not so different in these respects. Uh, but, yeah, he, he, he wanted his power, and, uh, you know, his son... Eventually got killed for it. Uh, so that, you know, and, and of course, the parliament, I mean, you ever talk to a chief executive of the state or the nation about what they think about Congress? You bet. Yeah. Well, the, the, the whole theory of grievances before supply and the question of parliamentary privilege and royal prerogative dominate these books. Do you want to expand on what that means? Why is parliament such a thorn in the side of so many monarchs? Well, it becomes, you know, if you're if you're the king in Britain, what the effect? What if you're if you're Louis the Fourteenth? You know what? What's the word? Uh, Absolute monarch. Let uh, le, uh, le a moi. I got it wrong. But I am the state, right? Well, it wasn't like that in England, and it never. It was really never like that. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is they didn't have a black and big old army. Uh, so that means you got to ask them for things, and you're the you're you're ruling under the divine right of kings, right? Why should you have to ask them? And then it'd be great if they would just always agree, uh, but they don't, and uh, that's uh, you know. So that's that's the frustration, and you know, uh, go back to Elizabeth. She was extremely skilled at all that. She got on with the parliament. Once she got her power established, she got on with the parliament like a house of fire. Yep. And, and, and she was as tough as is implied by that beautiful statement of hers before the, 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 by the Armada battle. Uh, but she, was, she could hear people, and she took care to listen and think. And so she found a way to work with them. You know, I, I kind of sympathize with James. After Fox tried to blow him up, you mentioned she was fire on the parliament. Well, they tried to blow him up. After that, you know, it becomes a very much a different situation in England. Yeah. It, uh, you know, that was, and see, what, what was Guy Fox upset about? Religion. And, and you know, it, it's true that uh, these Catholic-leaning kings were never so fully Catholic-leaning as they were thought. And, and you, know, the, the, you know, the solution to the problem 
was finally found in America, and before it was found in Britain, and that is worship how you want to and behave yourself. Uh, and also, we've got to add, my favorite part of all four volumes is the due that Churchill gives to lawyers, which is reluctantly voiced up at Hillsdale. Coke arrives, and the common lawyers save England from itself again and again and again because they've got so many of them in Parliament, and they're so smart, Dr. Arndt. So Churchill himself, not a lawyer, is willing to pay his due to the lawyers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, so he, the way he describes Coke, and, you know, it's, this is a survey, right? It's, he doesn't have time, <laughs> you know. But Co- Coke is interesting because Coke thought that the common law was the expression of some higher law. Yes, yes. And, and, and then, you know, and where does it come from? It comes from judges sitting in judgment about particular cases and writing opinions. And it's old and it's rich. And states in America, let me lecture you on the law for a minute, you. Uh, states in America inherit the common law. The federal government does not. Yes, uh, and the federal government is becoming sort of like Napoleon, Napoleonic law. They just you know make a law about everything they're not supposed to, and the basis for it is they made it, and their their uh, supposed servants in the in the bureaucracy make it. You know that's actually acute. We need to stay on that. Yeah. That the federal government is more Napoleonic code then the states are still wedded to their common law. I think you're right. We've got a couple of state Supreme Court justices who listen every day. They're nodding their heads. Yeah. And, it, you know, and the states are, you know, the, all that's teetering on the brink, right? Because uh, what they're, I was telling somebody this last night, they're 20, oh, Chris called, Christopher Caldwell, a great journalist, is on the campus right now. And we, oh, you're in harm's way. I've been profiled by him. He sees everything. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, we, we stayed up into the night talking with a bunch of people last night after he gave a great lecture about Ukraine. And, and, uh, but uh, I said, you know, you, if you want to understand the American government, just remember the laws are made in the bureaucracy, and the civilian employees of the United States government are something like 23 million, and something like 20 and a half million work for states. It's, it is... It's a burden beyond imagining. It's very yeah. Napoleonic. I'll be right back. Dr. Ron and I continue the Hillsdale Dialogue. We are in Volume 2, Book 5 of the History of the English-Speaking People. Hillsdale has notes put out on every episode, every chapter. Head over to hillsdale.edu to get your reading guide to the History of the English-Speaking People and come right back. Welcome back, America. The role of James I is to uh, give birth to Charles I, and and that's going to bring all sorts of hell loose, and actually to uh, marry Henrietta Maria, and we'll talk about her in a second. But he also got the King James Bible done, and we have to pause here because it's a glorious thing, Dr. Arne, uh, what he did. And I think Shakespeare has a hand in this Bible, as does every other of England's great writers, and it's a magnificent thing for a king to turn his attention to that project. Yeah, and it's, uh, uh, pe- pe- people say to me, you know, I, I always read the King James Bible. And people say to me, other translations are more accurate. And I say, and? Yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's written, written in Elizabethan English, in which Shakespeare wrote. And Cranmer, who's the chief person who did it, he oversaw a bunch of people, and they could really write. 
and and you know the words are supposed to be memorable. And you know what's uh, amazing, Doctor? We're we're still waiting for the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's been like sixty years. They got yeah. this done in four years. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's uh, it, it. You know, people got to work back then, and uh, and that that and see that's a, a major administrative achievement. That's why James is rightly given credit for it because he kept that team, he formed that team, and he kept it together, and he supported it, and he got it done. Now and, you know but, there were you know Tyndale in these years we're talking about, who, who did a, a great Protestant Bible, he got his head cut off in Amsterdam. And, uh, uh, and so it was controversial to translate the Bible. And it's partly the question, should the, the, the Bible be in the Vulgate, which is the Latin, the, the most common Latin Bible is called the Vulgate. And that's because it was in more ordinary Latin, Latin, Latin excuse me, Latin, I suppose, but not everybody reads Latin, right? And, and wherever the English-speaking people went, they took this Bible. This Bible is actually yeah. what brought the English-speaking people to a common understanding of Scripture, wherever but, they are you know, in the world. Uh, Professor Jaffe used to say, you know, everybody should read the Lincoln-Douglas debates and also listen to our, uh, our Hillsdale dialogues about them. But, uh, and they're very literate and beautiful. And profound, especially Lincoln's part. But uh, uh, everybody, Professor Jeffrey always said, everybody in the audience had two books in their house. And one was the King James Bible and the other was Shakespeare's plays. And those were written at the same time. Now, that is, that's remarkable. Now, I want to make sure we get a note in about Henrietta Maria. Uh, before James dies in, in 1624, he's married his son Charles to Henrietta Marie. She's an amazing woman. She gives birth to four monarchs, Charles II, James II, Mary, along with William of Orange, and then Anne. She must be a remarkable woman. I don't know anything about her that I haven't learned from Churchill. Yeah, well, she, she, well uh, Churchill's language about Henrietta Maria and Buckingham Charles's best friend is suggestive of things that I won't mention here. Right. Uh, but he does say that when Buckingham died, then Charles got close to his wife, and she was very consequential in these in these times. And she got, you know, she's one of the reasons he got his head cut off. Uh, and see, the way Churchill describes this story, and I don't know this story deeply outside. Churchill, uh, is that Charles actually was willing to do just about everything that was demanded of him. He just did it too slow. Yes. And some of the things that provoked the opposition to him, especially among the Puritans or the Roundheads, uh, he didn't intend them as they took them. And he'd take it back. But, uh, so those were misjudgments, and he would have had to been like Elizabeth to see the potential for all that and never make those mistakes in the first place. And if he had done so, he would have had a successful reign. Like by, by the way, Elizabeth. I want to underscore that when we come back, because defensible lines uh, is a theme of Volume 2 of the History of the English-Speaking People. Do not get outside of your defensible lines, because if you have to retreat, it's hard to stop a retreat.
Dr. Larry Art is my guest as we continue in our series on Churchill, the writer. We are doing the history of the English-speaking people. It's our fifth week in the book. And uh, I want to go back to that point that I made just before the break, Dr. Arn. Defensible lines. Charles I uh, would go too far and try and retreat. James II would go too far and try and retreat. They always overreached. If there's one lesson in the, uh, the tortured 17th century of England, it's have defensible lines. Don't, mm-hmm. don't let your grasp. Uh, See, they they had the example of Louis the Fourteenth before them, and he was <laughs> working murderous war on the Huguenots, and he could do that right because he was absolute. He had this whacking big army, and and the Parliament was not important to him uh, in the same way as in England, and so. You know, what, these people do not live in isolation. Indeed, they're often related married into each other's families. And so they watch, these monarchs watch what's done. And the the clever ones, the cleverest one of all, Elizabeth, she knows the ways in which Britain is a special case. And and she navigated that beautifully. Uh, The artfulness of her answers, uh, you know, when she's coming to the throne and even when there's a, a threat to her life, is that she reserves room for herself to move. And in the end, she was a Protestant. See, the, the, you know, I, I am a member of the Anglican Church, and uh, I got married in it, right? And this woman took over my life 43 <laughs> years ago. And, and I have really come to love that thing, and I love one thing about it. It's, it's uh, the way it works out. Because, you know, the Catholic Church had to be reformed, right? Every, everybody agrees with that. Even you agree with it. Yes. And, and, and so Britain had its own special way because of its separateness, because of its insularity. It's an island of working that out. And what they did was they kept the Catholic forms and they excluded the Catholic Church from rule. Now, they didn't get that right at the beginning because... The monarch took the place of the pope and it made many of the same mistakes and killed a lot of people that didn't need killing. Uh, it's only in America where Western, where European civilization, Western civilization gets to start over that we got that right at the outset. And uh, so we got it right despite the outset being in Massachusetts Bay Colony. I, I want to make sure I touch on this. Churchill will tell the American story in the course of these four volumes. The first. Uh, segue, the, the first sally there is with not Virginia, but with Massachusetts and then Rhode Island and Connecticut. How do you think he does in telling of the American story, especially the credit he gives to John Winthrop? Well, he does great. He, you know, it's a little too general because you just suggested something. The, the drama, one of the dramas that's worked out in colonial America, and colonial America lasted 150 years, is they figured out about freedom of religion. Yes, because the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Plymouth Rock Colony, all those colonies, they were they were formed on the idea 
that we're going to separate ourselves over here in this wild land, which we don't even understand, but then we can have a community where everybody worships the same way. And it took 150 years, but they found out over the course of that 150 years that no continent is big enough for that to work. (laughs) (laughs) They did. Actually, it took about 50 years before they'd already had schism in the Puritan church long Big enough to start Connecticut and Rhode Island. I mean, two unfortunate errors on their part. But nevertheless, they they proved it out. Meanwhile, the only established church in America that lasted for any period of time is in Virginia, where the greatest advocates of religious tolerance would arrive in the 18th century to rid that state of that establishment. That's right. And, you know, the... Uh, uh, the uh, I don't admire his work all that much, but Daniel Borston tells a great story in his history of America. Uh, he, he, he talks about how America is, are, are pragmatic. They don't have any principles. And his proof of that is that some Quakers went into Massachusetts colony, and they were proselytizing Quakerism, and that was a crime. And so they put them on a scaffold to hang them, but then they let them go. <laughs> so... So then, but then he goes on to say that later the same ones come back and do it again, and they do hang them that time. Uh, so that that stuff was going on in America, and the thing about it is, uh, if you're a Christian, uh, which I happen to be, you have to admit that you can't pass a law to make anybody go to heaven, and and therefore what has to reign is the moral law, right? The law, the law that we can all know because we can think. See. Now, you know, I want Catholics to know, Churchill, not a Catholic, quotes with great um, sympathy, I think it's Innocent the Thirteenth, as saying, no man can be dragged to his salvation. And he, he kind of sides with England in the religious wars with France because he doesn't want to try and impose Catholicism on the sceptered isle. Uh, that's that's right. and And he... Uh, so, you know, he, and see, you have to remember, one thing that's running through all of this is the deep conviction, the deepest conviction of Churchill. He's a liberal. And, and although he's a statesman and a politician and he lived his entire life there, and he's risked his life many times there, he always thought that you can't rule other people without their consent. And so this matter of religion is particularly troublesome, right? Because your duty to God, which you find, uh, and uh, say something about the difference of Christianity, Uh, in the ancient world, religion was practices, formal practices. Keep a fire burning in your house all the time, every meal, burn part of it to the gods, who are mostly your ancestors. Uh, And so... If you're doing that, and that takes up a lot of time, who cares what you think? Christianity is different. It's internal. It's praying. It's thinking things through. It's, you know, Christianity is a process of torturing yourself (laughs) about, about did you do right with the assurance from the Savior that you did not. And so it's, uh, it's, you know, it's like that, right? And you have to leave that to people. And and then what you can control and what you should control 
as little as you must is what people actually do. And how that works itself out. As little as you must, being the important part there. As little as you must. Let's thrust ourselves into Charles and Cromwell. Uh, This is hard. um, This is very hard. Because it gets so confusing. There are two civil wars. The first one against Charles. The second one almost internal to Cromwell. How do you even... uh, I think he does a fine job. But we can't do it in two segments, Doctor. How do you sum up what happened? Uh... Because Churchill says, here we reach, amid much confusion, the main foundation of English freedom. The right of the executive government to imprison a man, high or low, for reasons of state was denied, and that denial made good in painful struggles constitute the charter of every self-respecting man at any time in any land. Trial by jury of equals, only for offenses known to the law, if maintained, makes the difference between bond and free. That, that's what we got out of 70 years of internal strife in Great Britain. Yeah, this... The way Churchill tells this story reminds me of the way uh, C.S. Lewis writes his science fiction novels. Uh, the heroes are very worthy people, but often their main successes are inadvertent. And so Charles didn't mean everything that he was killed for, and Cromwell didn't mean killing the king and taking his place. He didn't set out to do that, but... Uh, the, the characters of those two people become terribly important because Charles was not Elizabeth, and he had been, this all would have been okay, in my opinion. But Cromwell was not Winston Churchill, but he was a heck of a force, right? Because he's, uh, he built the greatest army any English ruler, I mean, compared to the other armies around, has ever commanded. The Ironsides. Yeah, the model army, right? And they just were, he drilled them, and they had the fire of faith in them. And once he put them together, everywhere they went, they won. They They felt like stubble before our swords. It's an amazing story of of the march across Nasby and Marston Moore. It's all retold in fairly coherent fashion. But at the end, Cromwell... What do you think of Cromwell? I mean, Churchill is so divided in his thoughts about Cromwell. He knows what he did to the Irish and the butchery. He knows that he killed a king. But he also kind of thinks highly of his internal doubt and his irresolution about his aims. Well, that's the right opinion about him, right? He's, uh, he, he, uh, there's a, first of all, there's a wonderful equestrian statue of, of, of Cromwell directly outside the House of Lords in Parliament Square. And it's across the street from the ones in the, in the center of the square to where Churchill's is. But it's very prominent, right? And, you know, monarchs cringe about that. But he was really important. And the effects of what he did, as Churchill says, are better than he intended. Uh, i got to tell quickly, the quick story. When I went to Westminster Abbey for the very first time, before I ever read this, I'm standing outside of the crypt for Oliver Cromwell, and a little old lady tour guide, who's gone to the Lord years ago, because this is 30, comes up and says, he's not there, they hung him. And Churchill tells that story. <laughs> when it came time to restore the, the king, they dug up Cromwell and hung him. They did, they did. <laughs> and, uh, and, but the statue's there. And, uh, <laughs> it, uh, you know, that's, uh, of course they did that. Uh, and see, 
And remember, the thing that Cromwell, there are two things about it. The things that he built, he didn't intend to build it, and it didn't last. Yeah. And partly that was, you know, they finally figured out, after what, 30 years, they figured out, we don't know how to behave without a king. <laughs> yeah, the melting away of the republic. Well, we'll talk about that in the next time. Yeah. Don't go anywhere, America. Doctor on return. Welcome back, America. The tragedy of Charles I and the, the arc of the career of Oliver Cromwell is amazing. Churchill says it was the triumph of some 20,000 resolute, ruthless, disciplined military fanatics over all that England has ever willed or wished. Long years and unceasing irritation were required to reverse them. He also paused, again, this is right before the war. He's writing the first draft of the History of English People before World War II. We have seen the technique of frightfulness applied in our own time with Cromwellian brutality and upon a far larger scale. We know too much of despots and their moods and power to practice the philosophic detachment of our grandfathers. It is necessary to recur to the simpler principle that the wholesale slaughter of unarmed or disarmed men marks with a mordant and eternal brand the memory of the conquerors, however they may have prospered. And he closes by saying, upon all of us, there still lies the curse of Cromwell. At the end, he's unrelenting, Dr. Arndt, about Cromwell. Yeah, yeah, and that's, uh, you know, you, it, let's imagine, the reason, the reason Churchill is mixed is, you know, he's very clear in condemning that, but imagine that Charles, as affected by his wife, Henrietta Maria, imagine that they keep going and manage to, because what were they doing, right? They were, they were getting money from abroad to go around the parliament. They were arresting people and punishing them without trial. And all of those things that kings do when they're despots. And what it took to stop them was Cromwell, who wasn't so great himself. And, uh, but he wasn't, and that's a, you know, it's a good habit. Uh, Churchill says fine things about Cromwell, fine things about Charles, too. Because there were fine qualities in those people. There's a passage in this book where Cromwell and Charles are treating after Charles has been defeated, but before he is beheaded. They are deep in the negotiations. Is there a way out of this bind? It's very dramatic. Gosh, Churchill's a wonderful writer. Can we pause on that for a moment? This is summoning up events of 400 years earlier, and he's making it feel like you're watching. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And see, that, that, that recurs to my point that, I've learned to formulate what I think about Churchill as a historian in a different way because you're putting me through this torture. Um, he can put himself in the place of these people. Oh, you're right. And he's very used to making choices under constraint. And, you know, we're, we're not so used to that today. Oh, he's uh, treating with the French generals and the French government as they collapse as they're yeah. about to give away their navy. It's not unlike this, right? The defeated That's rival right. is France. He is Cromwell. What do I do with these French cowards who are leaving their troops out there in the middle of nowhere? And, you know, his strong condemnations of Cromwell referred to the period where Cromwell had lots of power and, and room to maneuver. And he abused that power, see, whereas Elizabeth did not. Uh, at least not to the, not, not in the same way, not so much. And that means that uh, rulers 
have to carry constraints inside themselves, and they have to live under them. What do you and, make of his caution, Doctor, on page 299? In harsh or melancholy epics, free men may take comfort from the grand lesson of history that tyrannies cannot last except among servile races. The years which seem endless to those who endure them are but a flick of mischance in the journey. That's awfully sanguine. Yeah, well, I, you know, we have to believe that. Uh, you know, we're at a crisis in the American Republic, in my opinion. I agree. And I think it's going to be okay. But I, I can see now how it might not. And, I agree. and so you're left then with faith that people want to continue to govern themselves. And uh, that's, you know, I mean, there are doctrines explicit in the land now that amount to the destruction of the capacity of human beings for freedom. You know, I, I see the polls out of Michigan before the vote uh, that, that, just astound me because of page 313. The rule of Cromwell manifested itself in the form of numberless and miserable petty tyrannies and thus became so hated as no government has ever been hated in England before or since. Petty tyranny is what Michigan was during the lockdown, Dr. Arn. Yeah, it was. And, and, and uh, uh, the most important thing about that is not, did she judge wrongly what to do about the pandemic? I thought she did at the time and resisted it, and I think it's clear now that she was wrong. The decisive thing is she did that by herself. She, and see, that means the legislature was not consulted. And there are two uh, emergency laws in Michigan, and the old one passed after the Second World War, like a lot of things we do right after wars and during wars, was bad. And it gives the, the governor wide power. And then they passed another one in the 70s that's like the ones that are good, and that is they uh, require consultation with the legislature. She started out on the good one. And the first time they denied her, she went to the bad one. You know, there's a Cromwell lurking in every governor. And when they show up, gosh, I hate when they win re-election. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be back next week with Dr. Arne. The rule of Cromwell continues, but restoration follows volume two, book six next week. Hillsdale is everything you want is at hillsdale.edu, including notes on every book in the history of the English-speaking people. Thank you, Dr. Arn. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.